Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Thank you for being here. And thank you to the organizers. It's wonderful to find a, a community broadcasting light in a new place, new to me. Um, it doesn't feel so far away to be, to be here. I met Elie Wiesel when I was 15 years old and remained close to him until the end of his life and, and can still consider myself his student and I know that I always will be his student. I learn from him every day. I continue to learn from him. And one of the questions that I had when I was around 20 years old was, I had read Night. How many of you have read Night by Elie Wiesel? So I read Knight, his, his first book, his memoir of the Holocaust, which perhaps we'll talk about in more depth later on. Um, and at the end of that book, the young Elie Wiesel has just been liberated from the concentration camps from Buchenwald. And he's looking into a mirror, and a corpse is looking back. Very, very dark, dark image from a dark, dark time that he called the Kingdom of Night. But I knew him, and I knew him as an incredibly joyous, person, a very funny person, a person who would tell jokes and smile a lot and had tremendous curiosity and wonder. And one of my questions was, how did he go from the last page of night to the person I knew, a person of great joy and wonder and celebration? And you know that many of his books were written originally in French, almost all his books, and then translated into English. And many of those books, the nonfiction books, were all called, in the original title, Celebration something, or in French, in English it would be biblical celebration, rabbinic celebration, Hasidic celebration, and he would tell stories of the Jewish tradition and consider that storytelling a kind of celebration. So this is a person of celebration, a person of joy. How did he get there? Many years later, after I had enrolled in his class at Boston University where he taught for almost 40 years, and years, even years after that, after I became his teaching assistant at BU, um, on the last day of the semester, he opened the floor to questions. Because he asked any, he asked students, they could ask any questions they wanted. He invited them to ask anything. And students asked questions about the course, the readings we had done in the class with him. They asked questions about current events. But they could also ask questions about his life. And a student from the back of the room raised her hand and asked, Professor, how did you keep going after the Holocaust? How did you keep going? And he said, well, First of all, if you ask me how I survived, I couldn't answer you. I have no idea. There were many people who were stronger than I, or more robust of health than I. I, I don't know, and any explanation would, would just fail. But I can tell you that what kept me going was learning. And then he told a story. And he said, after the war, after liberation, the young people were gathered together by 
I think it was members of the International Red Cross who were organizing the young people, the teenagers, and eventually they were moving them to an orphanage in France. But along the way, the adults, this is a day or two, or maybe perhaps even the day of liberation, the adults in charge, he said, asked us, can we get you anything? You've been through hell, can we get you anything to make your lives better? And Professor Rizal said, I remember one, one young woman asked for a sweater because she hadn't been warm in three years. A young boy asked for chocolate, which he hadn't tasted for about five years. He said, but I asked for the same volume of Talmud that I was studying before the war. Talmud is the, one of the central books of classical Jewish text. I asked for a volume of the Talmud, the same volume that I was studying before the war, so that I could pick up my studies at the exact same line and the exact same word where my studies were interrupted by the Nazis. And that's how I survived. Learning saved me. And then he added, I believe that learning can save us all. So if you asked Elie Wiesel, if I ask you first, who was Elie Wiesel? You might say author of Night, Holocaust survivor, human rights activist, Nobel Prize winner, confidant of presidents and prime ministers. But if you asked him who he was, he always said, I'm a teacher. And in 2008, uh, I realized in conversation with him that no one had really written about his role as an educator, as a teacher. He never allowed his classes to be taped because he felt that it would make the students self-conscious. And there was no video. There are videos of his public lectures, but there's no video of his classroom. And so I realized this is a very, very special, powerful thing, and people need to know about it. And so I said to him, Professor, someone needs to write a book about your classroom and your role as a teacher. And he said, I know, you need to do it. <laughs> and that's how I came to write this book. It's called Witness, Lessons from Elie Wiesel's Classroom. It begins with my meeting with him at the age of 15, uh, which was at a time in my life when I was very um, submerged in questions. I was a young artist. Uh, I was in a very, very religious Orthodox school. Um, my parents, my divorced parents, had very different ways of expressing their Jewish lives. I switched homes every day and every Shabbat. And every Shabbat was different. And so I had questions about that. I had questions about how, how to bring the parts of my life together. And I met Elie Wiesel after a lecture that he gave in New York. And I remember that I went over to him. There was a kind of reception line. And he held out his hand. And he said his name as if I had never heard of him before, <laughs> with tremendous humility and modesty which would characterize him for the rest of the time that I knew him. And over the, the next years, I stayed in touch with him, and I eventually built up the chutzpah to approach him and ask him my questions. And through my late teenage years, I, I, he was the person I went to to ask the difficult questions that I couldn't really get answers from anyone else about. And then I enrolled in his class at BU, as I mentioned earlier. And in his class, I was now a sophomore in college, I was very, very shy in class, and I was very intimidated to be there. This is a classroom of about 65 people, students from all over the world, all ages. There are undergraduate, graduate students, international students, evergreen students who are retirees who take classes at BU. And, and because of that, it was a multi-generational experience. It felt a little bit like a family gathering, kind of raucous and a lot of argumentation. It was a dialogue. And at the center of it was a slight man with a deep and quiet, gentle voice. And that was Elie Wiesel. 
And the class was very much a dialogue between him and the students. And it was beautiful, but I was intimidated. And I said one word the entire semester. I said one word the entire semester on only because he asked a question and he looked at me and he waited for a long moment of silence. And so I had no choice but to say the word that was in my mind. And the word was authenticity. I don't remember what the question was. I wish I did, but the word, the answer was authenticity. He looked at me with an arched eyebrow. He said, exactly. And a few weeks later, he asked me if I would become his teaching assistant the following year. And I declined because I was on my way to study in Israel. And I was very committed to that. I felt like I, I had a lot to learn about my own tradition. I didn't feel like I had a lot to contribute yet. I wanted to really go deeply into Jewish text study. So I wrote him a long letter and um, sent it to him and called him a week later. And when I called him, I said, did you get my letter? He said, I did. I understand your decision. And then he said, I'll wait for you. And I thought he was just being nice, kind, but he meant it. And seven years later, after I'd become a rabbi, and you know when you become a rabbi, that means you have to figure out what you're going to do for a living. <laughs> so I met with Professor Rizal to ask his advice. And he said, he said, I told you I'd wait for you. Come be my teaching assistant now. And so I enrolled in a graduate program at Boston University, something I had never planned to do. I never planned on getting a PhD. I only did it to be his TA. And, um, and it changed my life. And so I got to sit in the classroom with him for the next five years. This is now from 2003 to 2008, watching as he transformed the lives of hundreds and hundreds of students from around the world. And you have to understand, the students who enrolled in Elie Wiesel's classroom were not typical. They weren't just there to enroll in a class or because it was a requirement. In fact, it wasn't a requirement, I think, in any department. And his classes, if you remember um, the structures of universities, usually you know, Economics 101 is in the Economics department. His classes were called Literature of Memory. So what department does that fit into? So it was in like four different departments. It was in religion, theology, philosophy, literature, and, um, and another interdisciplinary program called the University Professors. And Many of the students who came, came because they were children or grandchildren of survivors, or because they had experienced oppression or war in different parts of the world, in Africa and elsewhere. And occasionally, they were grandchildren of Nazis in the class. And they were trying to come to terms with the terrible legacy of their grandparents' generation with tremendous sincerity. And so all these people had burdens that they were carrying and they brought those to the classroom. And if you know anything about universities, you know that there are many professors who would kind of demand that you leave those personal questions outside the room. We're here to gain information, methodological expertise. The subjective personal stuff doesn't belong in a classroom. And Elie Wiesel's classroom is just the opposite. It was rigorous. It was extremely intellectual. There's a lot of reading, a lot of writing. Uh, research papers, and so on. But it was also very open and hospitable to those personal questions. And so his room became, his classroom became a kind of Socratic dialogue about ethical issues and ethical questions. And I watched him, and I paid attention for five years, really going, oh, how did he do that? How did he just weave together the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita and Camus and Kierkegaard and this and the student's question, which seemed like, an, at first, like a dumb question, into this beautiful tapestry of ideas that's illuminating for everyone in the room 
And then as the punchline, he gives them a call to action. The world is in your hands. You must think of tomorrow as if it's part of your past. Conscience cannot function by proxy. It's up to you. Look for the outstretched hand. Look for something you can do in your life to make the world a better place. How did he do it? And so I wrote the book to try to answer that question. There's a lot to say. I want to, open to, I want to leave a lot of room for questions and answers, especially here, because this feels like I know you'll have a lot of questions. Um, but I just want to share a few things. So when I was thinking about writing the book, and I met with Professor Wiesel, I had the, the opportunity to, to speak with him about it early on. It was in 2008. Uh, the question was how to organize the book. And I really wanted to do it thematically. I wanted to focus on the things that he was obsessed with as a teacher. And I wanted to also focus on things that didn't appear anywhere else in his writings or in books about him. And so the chapter titles are Memory, which is about the power of learning to change the world, and the transmittability of memory. We'll talk more about that. Otherness, which means what do you do when you encounter difference? And that's a question we're all dealing with today, right? But, that, but he had an approach that was very different than often what you hear, even in the best discourse about diversity. He had a kind of approach that said, don't shy away from difference. Don't focus on that cliche that you hear in movies very often. There's, we have more in common than what divides us. No, focus on what divides us, but do it with deep respect. Don't be afraid of that. Play it up. Celebrate that. Open it up. Because that's where the interesting conversations will happen if they're done with deep respect. And so when we studied a Jewish text, I remember once he turned to the class. We were studying a text from the Bible. And for some reason, all the Jewish students in the class were responding, and the other students were quiet. And maybe because they were more familiar with it from school, I don't know why. But there was, a whole, there was like 20 minutes of conversation in this, in this class meeting with just the Jewish students. And he stopped and he said, what do you students who aren't Jewish think of this text? How do you feel about this text? And I remember the Christian students started responding and talking about a, a discomfort she had with something that was said earlier. But she said something that triggered the Jewish student. And there was a back and forth discussion that got heated, but it was heated in a respectful way because Elie Wiesel had rules in his classroom. One of the rules was there's only one person here that you can interrupt, and that's me. You're not allowed to interrupt each other. He had every class begin with student presentations, which annoyed some students because they came to hear from the Nobel Prize winner, not from their fellow students. But he believed it's really important to model respect. And he wanted his students to have a voice. So he started every single lecture with a 10-minute mini lecture given by the students to which he would respond every, every week. And he said, I'm the best student in this class. I will learn as much from you as you will learn from me. And he meant it. So when you have a, a space that's so dedicated to respect, you don't have to run away from difference. You can encounter it, and you can explore it together. There's a chapter on faith and doubt, which, as you know, I'm sure was a big theme, a big preoccupation for Elie Wiesel. His two major questions were, how did human beings do such terrible things to other human beings and allow it to happen? And how did God allow it to happen? And so he developed a theology that is a radical new Jewish theology that he called a wounded faith, where by arguing with God, you are expressing your devotion to God. By holding God accountable to an ethical 
uh, level of seriousness and commitment by saying to God, what you did, God, was not okay. It wasn't ethical to allow such a thing to happen. You are expressing devotion. You're expressing faith. So there's a whole chapter about that because this is, this is a very enormously important question for us today when we think about the role of religious communities in fomenting violence or peace. Elie Wiesel was obsessed with the theme of madness. First, because when he was very young, he was a teenager, he was around 13, I think, he and two friends decided that they want to study the Kabbalah. They want to study Jewish mysticism. So they got together and they met with a teacher and they were warned by many people, don't study Kabbalah, it's dangerous to get into mysticism too early. And you know there's a tradition in Judaism not to study Jewish mysticism until you're 40 years old, married, and have already studied Talmud, sort of the basic Jewish stuff, the classical text that keeps you grounded when you then enter into the garden of forbidden knowledge, of dangerous knowledge. But he and his friends wanted to study this, so they did. And after a few weeks, I think it was, one of his friends lost his mind. And they continued. The two friends who were left continued. And then the other friend lost his mind. They became catatonic. And Elie Wiesel said, it's very strange to say, but if the Nazis hadn't invaded my small town of Siget in Transylvania, I'm convinced that I would have followed them into, into madness. So he was obsessed with madness. He also, as a child, belonged to a family that cared deeply about acts of kindness. And so everyone in the family had a job on Shabbat. Um, his, his mother, I have to get this right, his mother and his sisters, I think, would bring food to the poor people or the hospital. And his job, as a boy, was to visit the insane asylum by himself and bring snacks, candy, and things like that to the inmates. And so he had these early encounters with madness, but of course, his obsession with madness really came from seeing the world go mad, seeing the ethical structure of the world just disappear and people act towards their neighbors with not only insensitivity, but a kind of madness. How does that happen? How does a culture become taken over by madness? How does a culture that seems cultured, that seemed noble, that was known as the, the most cultured country, nation in Europe, the nation of Kant and Goethe suddenly descend into the worst kind of horrific behavior. How can we understand that? So he studied characters who were also mad in literature. He studied Dostoevsky who said, I have a new plan to go mad. He studied characters who lost their marbles in, in, in works of fiction, in works of literature and plays. He tried to understand how do we respond to a world that goes mad? And his conclusion was when the world goes mad, we also have to go mad, but in a different way. And here I want to read you a short excerpt from my book. This is a scene that takes place in the very first class meeting. And Professor Wiesel has asked me to prepare a one-page text to kick off our discussion of the course topic. And for this course, I chose a short story by the Hasidic master, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov who Elie Wiesel called the greatest storyteller of all time. And the story is called The Tainted Grain. And a few student volunteers begin to read the story out loud. Once an astrologer king saw in the stars that anyone who eats of next year's grain will go mad. He called in his viceroy and friend to ask for his advice. 
Sire, replied the counselor, it's simple. You and I shall eat only of last year's grain, and so we shall remain sane. But the king replied, I don't accept your proposal. How can we separate ourselves from our people? To remain the only sane people among a nation of madmen, they will think that we are the ones who are mad. Instead, you and I shall eat of the tainted grain and shall enter into madness with our people. He thought for a moment, and then the king said, we must, however, at least recognize our malady. Therefore, you and I shall mark one another's foreheads with a sign. And every time we look at one another, we shall remember that we are mad. That's the end of the story. In the ensuing classroom conversation, students ask questions and respond to his questions and prompts. And I'm skipping ahead a little bit. A student named Soleil, an African theology student, introduces herself and says, I have seen this kind of thing before when nations go mad. Real madness sweeps a nation and the leaders hide behind their fortified walls. They refuse to come out, they don't take responsibility, people are hurt. But when the leaders go with the people, sometimes things have changed. I see Professor Wiesel's gaze sharpen. Where are you from, he asks. Soleil says, I'm from Zimbabwe. Then you understand this story, he says, and you must share your story. Later, Soleil comes to talk to me during office hours. She tells me haltingly that her brother was killed by the Mugabe regime during a protest. She tells me that many of her family members and childhood friends are HIV positive and struggle to find medical care or do without. I'm so sorry, I can't imagine that, I tell her. Then after a moment, I say, you know, Professor Wiesel insists on meeting with every student in the class, which was true. He was a very busy man traveling around the world, but he wanted to meet with every student in the class for at least 10 minutes in the semester. So I told her that. But he will especially want to speak with you. I can help you make an appointment with him for next week if you'd like. She agrees, and I see her smile for the first time. Later, she told me that she met with him for almost an hour. Soleil discussed her experiences with him. He asked questions, and they sat in silence for several minutes. At the end, as Soleil stood in the open doorway about to leave, Professor Wiesel took her hand gently and said, I told you in class that you must tell your story. This is because if even one person learns from it how to be more human, you will have made your memories into a blessing. We must turn our suffering into a bridge so that others might suffer less. So here you have a man who survived who lived with his memories, and who said, what do we do with our memories? That's the challenge of our generation of survivors. Do we turn our memories into a curse? A curse of fear, living as Jews, afraid of the world, or angry at the world? Do we choose revenge? Or do we somehow turn our memories into a blessing? And you know that Elie argued strongly, and sometimes publicly against uh, people who were trying to make an argument that the Holocaust was similar to other kinds of tragedies, other kinds of uh, moments of oppression in human history. And he argued that the Holocaust is completely unique for several reasons. He said not all victims were Jews, but all Jews were victims. Jews were victims just for being Jews. And unlike previous moments in Jewish history, the enemy didn't want Jews to convert or to leave the country and leave all their material wealth behind or anything like that. They just wanted Jews to die to disappear, 
We've never had anything like that in, in Jewish history or human history before. He argued very strongly that the Holocaust was unique. And what did he do with the uniqueness of the Holocaust? He learned universal lessons and applied them to people suffering in Cambodia, Yugoslavia, Rwanda, Darfur, and elsewhere. And if he were alive today, he would be talking, I think, about Yemen and Syria and the Rohingya in, in Myanmar. And he brought universal lessons and activism out of his singular, unique Jewish particular experience. And that's something that we as a, as a society have yet to figure out. We see a choice between our particular tribal identities and universal commitments to humanity. And he believed that those two things are not at all intention. In fact, they're mutually reinforcing. The more Jewish you are, he said, the more human you are. The more connected you are to your own story, the more you can be there for other people. And this story, this excerpt I just read to you, for me is a striking example of a Hasidic story. It's a Jewish story and not a very well-known one, sort of esoteric Jewish folktale in dialogue with an African student who has gone through something in Zimbabwe and is trying to redeem her story. That was the kind of encounter that happened in his classroom. It was those moments that I thought to myself, someone has to write a book about this. Someone has to capture this because it's hard to believe. And, and the, the power of dialogue between different traditions is so needed right now. And this was before, before the election, before recent events, before the Tree of Life shooting in Pittsburgh. And unfortunately, the urgency around some of these questions is even greater since I wrote the book than before. So I'm going to pause there and open the floor to questions. There's a lot more to share, and I'm happy to. But I'd love for you to think about what you'd like to know, what you'd like to ask. And if I can answer, I will. I wanted to ask you, uh, when you going back a bit, when you said about when he was a young person and him and his two friends were decided to study Kabbalah, um, the, I've never read Kabbalah, but is it the writings or is it because he was so young that what was on the written page influenced his mind or is it, is it really mystic in, in, in nature that it could turn somebody like that and kill him? Yeah, yeah. So, I'll, I'll repeat the question. Yeah, thank you. Um, the question is, what was it about the study of Kabbalah, of Jewish mysticism, that was so dangerous to young Elie Wiesel? And the answer is there, there are several kinds of Kabbalah, but, but the theoretical Kabbalah and the practical Kabbalah are deeply intertwined. And so when you study these texts, they're not just abstract philosophical uh, works. They're involved with practices and ideas that, according to Jewish mysticism itself, contain so much light and power that their essence is dangerous. And so it's not that they're bad or bad for you, it's just that they are so exalted that it can become something called, in Hebrew, riboy or, which means too much light. And a person can become figuratively blinded by that light. That was the danger. And remember, he was living in a small town, a medium-sized town in Eastern Europe, he wasn't going to university to study an academic course on Kabbalah. That's a different kind of thing. This is studying with a master late at night, purifying through ascetic practices, fasting, dunking in cold water, and then studying late at night. Those kinds of practices can work. He was actually with a professor. They, they didn't just pick it up and start reading. No, they studied with a rabbi, 
with a rabbi, which would, you would think would make it safer, but in fact meant that they were able to access more, understand more, and that is, that is dangerous. Knowledge can be dangerous in all sorts of ways. Yes. Yes, today we're seeing more and more talk about from the Muslim community, etc., that perhaps, or the Muslim community, that perhaps the Holocaust was a figment of imagination, that it really didn't exist. As a student of Ellie Wiesel, what would you, how would you respond to all this negativism that this didn't occur? So, because, so the question is, how do we respond to Holocaust denial? And there's Holocaust denial, and there's also the minimization of the Holocaust, the denial of the scope of the Holocaust. Those are all forms of denial. Iran sponsors a Holocaust denial cartoon contest for many years. So this is, sometimes this is embedded in governmental policies and programs in the Muslim world in particular. Um, works of Holocaust denial are very popular in certain parts of the world. So how do we respond? So I'll, I'll tell you two things. The first is that Elie Wiesel said, don't respond directly to Holocaust deniers. They're not worth your time. And by responding to them or debating them, you are giving them more respect than they're due. You're actually feeding their, their platform and the attention that they receive. So don't, don't respond to them. And in fact, I heard a, on one of these talks, I was in uh, Philadelphia, and someone told me a story of a lecture where Elie Wiesel spoke. And a young man came over to him afterwards and asked the question you just asked, but he was asking within his own family. He said, my family, not, this is not a Jewish family, my, my uncles deny that the Holocaust happened, and we're getting together for Thanksgiving dinner. What do I say? What do I do? I, I, I totally believe the Holocaust happened, but how do I persuade my uncles? And Elie Wiesel said, don't even try. It's not worth it. Your job is to be my witness. So that's the second thing I want to say. What, what do we do instead of debating? What we do instead is hold fast to memory. And for, for Elie Wiesel, memory with a capital M, you could hear the capital M when he said the word memory, was a sacred commitment. He quoted the, the famous Jewish historian Shimon Dubnov, who even at the last days when he, was, he knew he was going to die, he was about to be murdered by the Nazis, called out to his fellow Jews, Yidden schreibt und schreibt, Jews write, write everything down, write everything down because he believed that memory is sacred, telling the story is sacred, and you know that many people who went through the Holocaust wrote their memoirs in, um, in whatever materials they could find, buried them in milk crates. Some of them have been found after the war. Um, the Onik Shabbos group, there's a movie that just came out about this, a documentary about the Onik Shabbos group, which is a group of, of um, memoirists, of historians, who wanted to keep a history because they said, no one's going to believe it. No one's going to believe that this is happening. We have to write down the facts, the dates, the details, so that we can share it with the world. So I'll tell you a story that I often end these talks with, but I'll tell you now because of your question. On the last day of class, again, the floor was open, and a student, after several other questions, a student raised his hand. He said, Professor Wiesel, can you show us the number on your arm? And there was a long silence. I didn't know how Professor Wiesel was going to react. He took off his jacket, he rolled up his sleeve, he showed the class the number on his arm, all in total silence. He rolled his sleeve down and buttoned it, put his jacket on again. He said, next question. And this was in a period of time when 
if you Google the name Elie Wiesel, among the first, I think, 10 results that you would have gotten would have been a link to the site of a woman who has devoted her life to proving that the Holocaust didn't happen and that Elie Wiesel didn't have a tattoo. She had a Holocaust denial website, more than one, I think, actually. And she had written a letter to Boston University faculty and administration saying, you know that Elie Wiesel is a fraud and doesn't really have a tattoo and the Holocaust didn't really happen. And so when he showed the class his tattoo, his number, which was a searing moment, I thought to myself, these are now 65 students who have become witnesses to the fact on his arm. They can now respond to this woman and anyone like her who denies the Holocaust. And Elie Wiesel believed that listening to a witness makes you a witness, that listening to someone else's story gives you a responsibility to share that story. If you have an opportunity to talk to a survivor, a family member, or someone in the community and hear their story, or if not, then to read their story, to read memoirs, even though it's difficult to look at, it's difficult to encounter and to read those stories, it's critically important that we and young people hold on to the stories and retell the stories. Listening to a witness makes you a witness. It's the only way when we, when we no longer have survivors, your question becomes even more urgent. How do we respond to Holocaust denial when no one can say, I was there, when no one can show the number on their arm? Well, then it's up to the next generation and the next generations. And by the way, that's why I call the book Witness, because listening to a witness makes you a witness. And only afterwards did, I, did I, it occur to me that witness is a noun, but it's also a verb. And really, my, my hope is that the reader, especially younger readers, will take it as a call to action, to bear witness, to learn the stories, to adopt a survivor's story and know the details of their lives so that they can tell those stories and in that way shut down Holocaust denial and distortions of the historical fact. Thank you. The question is, did my association with Elie Wiesel affect me personally in any way? And the book is partly a memoir. It's a, it's a memoir sort of interwoven with these classroom scenes. And I'll tell you that when I first started writing the book, it wasn't supposed to be a memoir. I wasn't thinking about a memoir. Um, and I went to publishers to try to get them interested in the book. And they all said, we're interested, but we want you in the book. We want more of you in the book. We want your story, too because it'll help the reader connect more to the content of what you're sharing. So I, I realized that was a smart thing, even though it was not a comfortable thing for me to write about myself. Um, and um, the answer is absolutely changed me in, in many, many ways. I'll, I'll, just say, I'll just say 72 ways that it changed me, okay? <laughs> and, those are, and that's a short, short list. I'll say three things. One. Professor Wiesel believed in me very deeply, and he believed in his students very deeply. And so there were moments in my life when I had a challenge to face and um, something that required courage, either to stand up and do something that was right but scary, or uh, a moment of needing to overcome myself in some way. And his was the voice I heard saying, you can do it. I think we all have people like that in our lives. I hope we do. And I hope we are that for other people in our lives. But it's so important to have that, that confidence. 
and that support and that love. That was one thing. Number two, I mentioned my, my life as, an, as, a, as a teenager was, was really sort of fragmented. I was really torn between the world of tradition and Jewish learning and observance and the world of art and creativity. And I was trying to navigate a way of bringing those things together, but in my very orthodox school, they didn't know anything about art. There were no art classes. Like, what is that? That's not, is that even a thing? <laughs> it was like not even a category in their minds. And so, uh, and the other people I knew who were artists didn't have the connection, the deep connection to Jewish learning. And Elie Wiesel was a person who lived before the Holocaust and grew up in an unbroken chain of tradition where all the different facets of life are integrated. And people really, wherever they were on the spectrum of Jewish life before the war, there was a certain wholeness and oneness that I saw in him. Because he was an artist, he was a writer, an author, and it's interesting that in France, by the way, they know him primarily as an artist, as a literary figure. The other roles come later, the human rights activist, all that stuff comes second or third. But he was, he lived very much like an artist. He lived sort of outside of time. He slept three hours a night, would wake up, you know, three or four in the morning to write for three hours every day. Um, but he was also learning all the time. He continued his Talmud studies for the rest of his life. From that day after liberation, he continued. And so I saw him as someone who could help me make sense of those connections and bring those things together. And third, and, and there's so many things to say, but third, I'll say that he really helped me to grow into a teacher, um, which I really strongly believe is the most noble profession and the best thing that, that if a person who, who is a teacher by nature can do with their lives. And he gave me a space in which to apprentice, really, because as his teaching assistant, he gave lecture, and then my job was to lead a, a small discussion section where the it was half the class at a time. And I was sort of thrust into that in a sink or swim kind of way. Suddenly, I was in charge of this discussion section for many people who were older than me, more accomplished than me, you know, people with PhDs. And I had to figure it out. And somehow I, I was able to figure it out, but very much in dialogue with him and with, with his support. And so I developed a, a way to teach that was meaningful to me and helpful for people. And that's what I do now. So I kind of owe him my professional path as well as my personal integration. And that's just three of many, many other things. In the spectrum of art, is your primary discipline writing, or do you do other types of art? So I, I create visual art, and I also write music. And writing was a late, um, late kind of medium for me. I grew up making art when I was 15. The same, same time, same period I met Elie Wiesel, my father brought home a beautiful Fender Stratocaster electric guitar from a yard sale in the Catskills in upstate, upstate New York that he found on the side of the road. And it was like an American-made black and bronze Fender Stratocaster, really beautiful. And I picked it up, and I didn't know how to play. And my father's a musician and a composer, but I never really had a, a strong interest in learning, but now I did. So I stopped doing homework for about six months, and I practiced guitar every day, and I learned the guitar and got really, really into it and started writing songs. And, and my experience with both making art, painting, and drawing, 
and with playing music was that it always flowed very naturally, and I often felt like um, something is coming through me and I don't have to work hard, I just have to make room for it. Writing is very different. Writing is sweating. I had a, a notion of what each chapter was going to be about, but the process of actually sitting down and writing every day was very hard work and it was a great workout. I felt like I lost weight every time and got in better shape. And it was a very different process. Um, and I'm still kind of working on the relationship between those different media. Do they connect in some way or not? I'm not sure of the answer yet. By the way, there's a chapter here about art. It's called Beyond Words because there were moments in class when Professor Wiesel would reach the end, the limits of language in trying to describe something. And very, very occasionally, he would sing in class. He would sing a song of his childhood. And that was a different kind of teaching, a different kind of transmission. And you know that when he wrote Night, or before he wrote Night, after the war, he took a vow of silence for 10 years before writing about his experience. And then he wrote a book about his experience. And the book was called, in Yiddish, And the World Remains Silent. And the book was, I think, 864 pages long. 864 pages long. And then he contracted the book. He cut and cut and cut until we have the book Night that we have, which is like 100-something, 100 110 pages maybe, something like that. And he said, it's the only way I could write about my experience. He said, writing for me is not like painting. It's not that I add words. It's a process much more like sculpture, where the artist sees the image inside the stone and chips away everything extra and leaves only the essential. That's what writing is for me. So I had to write a bigger book and then cut it back. And he said, all the words that I cut, that I took out, you think they're not there? They're still there. You can't see them, but they're still there. And that was an expression of how much he was struggling. How do you convey the experiences that can't be conveyed? But how can you not? You have a sacred responsibility to memory, to share those experiences. That was the bind that Elie Wiesel found himself in as a young person and many survivors. Many survivors didn't want to talk or write about their experiences. And those that did struggled. How do I find the words? And to the end of his life, Elie Wiesel wondered, did we find the words? Did I find the words? Has the world learned anything, even from our telling of the story? It keeps happening. There are other genocides. The world doesn't seem to have learned. So maybe we didn't find the right words. He was worried about this to the end of his life. But he said, the answer lies with you. It lies with the reader. It lies with the next generations. It lies with you to see what kind of world do you make from the stories that we've told. I think we have like, time for one more question. Yes? Are you in touch with the next generation of his family? I am. I am. Am I in touch with the next generation of his family? I, I became close with his son, his only son, Alicia, um, a few years before Professor Rizal passed away. Um, and we're very close friends now. And what does he do? He, so he works, he has a, a day job, and then he occasionally is speaking publicly about things that matter to him related to his father. Um, but he's very selective about it because he's a very busy person. He's brilliant. He has a lot of his father's wisdom and warmth. And it's very exciting if you have a chance. There are things online you can see of him speaking, Alicia Wiesel. Um, and you can see that he has, he has a very important message and an important insight 
for things that are going on today. We've actually done some events. We did one event together. We've spoken about doing more where we shared the stories of the, the son and the student and sort of compared notes. It was beautiful, very instructive. And we saw some things that were you know, different facets of Elie Wiesel that I didn't get to see at home and he didn't get to see at school. It was very beautiful and meaningful and moving to put those stories together. I just have a little point of interest for you. When we started the Jewish worship group, there had just been recent articles about him and his death and all this stuff, you know, and when we were doing an email address, we used his numbers as mm. our email wow. address. Wow. It, it just, we were all talking and I said, that is beautiful. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. So you're already doing the sacred task of sharing, holding fast to memory and sharing it forward. And the question is, what's the next step? Is there one more thing that we can all do at a moment when memory seems to be more important than ever, but also more fragile than ever? Not only when it comes to Holocaust denial, but the way that, the way that our connections to people of other traditions and parts of the world, even in this country, are so threatened and so frayed. How do we reweave those bonds? Certainly one of the aspects of that work has to do with storytelling. Not only telling our own stories, but telling the stories of our ancestors. And by the way, one of the things I do now when I'm traveling around, I do um, something called the Witness Workshop. And part of it is I'm just asking people a very simple question. I ask them to divide into pairs and share the earliest story that you have from your ancestors. The earliest story that you've gotten from your parents or grandparents or even further back. It could be a story, it could even just be the, the fragment of a story. So in my family, for example, on my father's side, the earliest image we have from my paternal side is the image of feathers flying through the air. Because my father's grandmother was, I think, 12 years old during the Kishinev pogrom where she remembered seeing feathers flying through the air because the, the Cossacks were cutting open pillows looking for jewelry. And within a few months, she was sent with her younger sister to America with, I think, like $20 in her pocket. And so that image, I asked people to share those stories. One of the things that it reveals is that we might think that there's a lot of similarity in our origins, but there's actually a lot of diversity, hidden secret diversity. There's a lot of immigration, refugee stories, um, and, it, and it helps to surface some of those stories and some of the differences that can be doorways into sensitivity to other people who are refugees or immigrants. That's a very simple prompt, right? It's not like rocket science, it's very simple. But those are the kinds of questions and stories and exercises that if we do with each other in our own communities and we share with others outside of our communities can begin slowly, slowly to make a difference and come together. So that's what I'm thinking about. This is what keeps me up at night is, you know, we need Elie Wiesel's voice now more than ever. We need his wisdom, we need his humor, we need his, his ability to hold the tension of competing values and, and, and create a conversation that honors difference and honors different perspectives and different traditions with depth and sensitivity and all of it in the service of, of, of a greater, more human approach to living. That was his goal for his students and for everyone. He wanted. He wanted to sensitize us. He wanted us to be more sensitive and more human so that we could create a world that was kinder and wiser and more thoughtful. And we can do that, but we need his voice helping us 
shape the path as we walk it. So I hope to see you again. And I hope next time we'll have a lot to celebrate. We'll hear good news from the world, from our own community. And thank you so much for having me. This is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community Indeed, all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.